Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 30. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Hector Marrero. And today with us we have Alex Urist as a guest in the studio, and our topic that he has brought for us is the opening and closing of doors because of language. Yeah, so I guess my general idea behind this opening and closing of doors with language is that most of the time, language gives you an opportunity to open doors that have, you've never seen before. But there are certain circumstances where perhaps the door might actually close because of your knowledge of that language. I guess at first we could talk about the opening of doors because that seems to be more of a straightforward answer. In my experience, is that my doors were opened up through my knowledge of the Chinese language. And that really started when I took Chinese in high school started taking it my freshman year of high school, and it sort of turned into a new passion for me. I love the culture, I love the language, I love the history. I love that with the language, there's four parts to the language. You're listening, speaking, writing, and reading, which are all interconnected but different at the same time. So I think it was with this that I really started to love Chinese. And I went to China the summer after my junior year, and at that time, my Chinese wasn't too great. I was still a high school student. I kind of took Chinese, but I didn't necessarily love it as much as I do now. I think that's definitely due in part to the dealings I had with Chinese culture when I went abroad. And perhaps my exposure to the language kind of set that off and, and propelled it forward. So the first time I went to China, my knowledge of Chinese is very, very limited. I struggled through conversation with one of my good friends from high school's mother. She would always try and point things out and tell me what they are, and I didn't really know. I learned how to express the word to need. I need something. I didn't really know that before. It was always I want or I would like. It was never I need. So it's very easy to pick up the language when you're there, but it's really hard going in without any language to have those doors open to you. The second time I went, I went on a government-sponsored trip after high school. And at that point, my Chinese was a lot better as I had come back the year before, really put an effort into studying the language itself. It takes a lot of time and effort. When I graduated high school, I really learned a lot more and I started to have the opportunity to integrate myself into a common life, a Chinese life in some sense, spending time with friends, eating barbecue on the streets, talking with different people about their experiences. Anybody from a shopkeeper on the street to somebody who's doing business in a factory, you know, I just had those opportunities. When I went abroad, the fall semester of my junior year, that was just 100%. I got to go out on my own, experience life, and just have all these doors opened up to me. I had a door opened up to me to go on a radio show. I had a door opened up to me to make music with one of the top producers in Zhejiang province. So just these opportunities that arose basically because I just knew how to speak Chinese, but also with the exposure to the culture and the history and my knowledge of that helped to get these doors wide open. Then most recently, I went back this past summer with my boss for a Chinese barbecue restaurant that I was working at in Boston. We went to China to go research foods, and that really helped is that, you know, I, I helped to open up the doors for him, in a sense, in terms of what questions could be asked, because they might see him as a competitor. They don't know if he's a, an actual American citizen and his Chinese is flawless because he grew up in Beijing. So <laughs> I helped to open up those doors to facilitate communication of what sorts of new food offerings he could bring to his menu. But, you know, doors can be closed, too. And I think that that's an important facet to recognize as well. So you know my experiences with opening up doors. I guess I, I'm curious about if you've had experiences with language where you've opened doors, perhaps had doors shut on you, 
what sorts of experiences you've had with language creating this gateway to learning about a new culture, a new history. Yeah, I actually took Spanish or started taking Spanish in middle school from about seventh or eighth grade onward all through high school and for the first two years of Kenyan. So I think it's something like seven-ish years of Spanish and I don't think I've become fluent. But as I mentioned in an earlier episode, I spoke a lot of Spanish with people who worked at the grocery store where I worked throughout high school. And I remember being able to communicate with a lot of the Spanish speakers there many of whom were from El Salvador and Mexico and other areas in Central and South America. And I really enjoyed being able to communicate with them in their native languages. And I think they also enjoyed having that ability to talk to someone who might seem otherwise unfamiliar. But I remember the managers were always very strict about people speaking in Spanish, which I could understand and maybe get on board with because I spoke English and it wasn't weird for me to not speak Spanish. But it seemed like an isolation of them. And so it wasn't necessarily my door that was closing, but I felt weird about the fact that they couldn't speak their language or were sort of urged not to. And I feel like it's, you know, assimilation that's being practiced and it's kind of sad. And I'm certainly not fluent in Spanish and I'd like to learn more and maybe someday travel because I think there's really no other way to learn a language but to be immersed in that culture and force yourself to speak it. But I haven't had a ton of doors closed necessarily, maybe as an English speaker on some level. I don't know, it definitely, it it affects the way you think. There's this Peer-Whorf hypothesis that theorizes that language gives us the the concepts and sort of the building blocks with which we see the world. And so I think language determines what you perceive around you, what's important. But I'll get back to that later. I'm going on at length. Hector, what about you with opening and closing of doors? I think I'm mostly interested in this idea of closing doors due to language. I can't think of any time that knowing another language has closed a door on me. However, I do know of times... So a quick story, the first time I ever traveled away from America or United States of America was when I went to Rome last year. I didn't speak the language, I didn't speak Italian, and uh, I saw that as a closed door for myself. It was me not allowing myself to have learned that language, or at least never having thought of taking that language. And that prevented me from having rich, deeper conversations with people who owned bars or cafes or restaurants or whatever. I was only able to speak on a basic level. And I realized then, being in the actual physical place where people speak a different language than English, how valuable. It was only then that I realized just how precious and valuable it is to know another language and to be able to communicate in this rich and deep and meaningful way in a different country. So I'm curious, I want to branch that along to closing of doors. In what context or what experience have you seen a door closed because of a language or because of knowing another language. So I guess the the door closing idea is more that it's an opportunity that is there and the doors may be open that you could walk through, but because of other matters, the door shuts in your face. So this story comes from uh, my time abroad. I had a good friend of mine, very, very nice guy. And we had all gone out to a bar and we were hanging out and we had some of our Chinese friends there with us and having a good time bought some alcohol then there were these odd fellows who were taking our alcohol away from us which you know we shrug it off don't want to cause a stir no problems and i had left with my friend to go outside of the bar to go get some food that's on the street the barbecue there is delicious and we came back inside and these people were arguing with some of our other friends up on the second floor and you know we didn't want there to be a stir at all so my friend had tried to push them away 
just break up the altercation that was going on. And, um, you know, maybe about five seconds later, just this object comes flying out of nowhere and hits my friend straight in the face, right, right by his left eye. And it was a bottle, it turned out, and it shattered on his face and ended up going to the hospital. Right after it had happened, one of our Chinese roommates had called the police or and also contacted the bouncers at the club and apprehended the person who threw the bottle so that he could go off to jail, ideally. What actually happened is that my friend, after going to the hospital, had to go to the police station. And at the police station, our roommates told him that you should not speak in Chinese. And that seems odd, right? You know, we're there studying Chinese. It's a language that we're comfortable communicating in. We have no problem communicating with our roommates. But they said not to speak Chinese because you could probably get off easier with any problems in that if the other person said that something was said between them, then there's no way that they can actually prove that something was said if you don't speak Chinese. So it was very odd. It seemed very odd that, you know, this the door was there for him to be able to negotiate everything in Chinese, yet it shut in his face because of the possible negativities that will come out of that. So I guess that's what I have more in terms of the, the closing of doors. And then, Kip, your your example is very interesting in that your your coworkers were not allowed to speak Spanish. And that the, the door is being shut right in their face. And I understand why, because you want to culminate this work environment of English, but it also is, you know, there's a lack of an ability to form relationships with some of your similar speaking coworkers. You know, it seems very hard. Absolutely. I mean, I think bilingualism allows people to think in different modes. And I feel like, although I've never been forced to speak the dominant language of an area or of a culture, I imagine it's a really uncomfortable feeling when you're not allowed to speak and in some ways think in a way that you feel natural or like yourself. I feel like that's got to be really, really uncomfortable. And learning Spanish, although I'm certainly no expert in various Spanish cultures, I mean, there have been just a lot of eye-opening experiences or moments in considering how other people in Spanish-speaking nations, for example, conceive of ideas that I've already conceived of. And I believe certain phrases, and Hector, you can sort of check me or correct me on this, but like there are certain phrases in Spanish like me gusta, which might in English translate to I like is actually more literally it is pleasing to me. It's less about the individual and more about sort of the external sources. And I find that really fascinating. Or it's se me olvido, which is something to the effect of it was forgotten by me and less about the agency of the individual. And I think that that's really interesting. But before I continue, is that accurate to what you remember? Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I think that's fascinating. I remember learning a lot about other Spanish-speaking cultures where weight is treated much differently than it is in the U.S. And certain people that are probably considered overweight or obese in the U.S. are seen as healthy in other cultures. And I just think that's fascinating that I'm sure some of that has to do with language. But yeah, bilingualism, I think, is super important. And I wish that it were stressed more. But Alex, I'd also be curious to hear from you how maybe your perception of Chinese culture has changed and has grown, especially after your first trips to China, were there certain maybe stereotypes that you held at one point that were changed? Anything like that I'd find interesting. I've always had a belief that learning a language is 75% culture and only 25% of the actual language. And the reason I say it is that language and culture are just so closely intertwined that it's impossible to shrug off one or the other. So saying that Chinese has a lot of culturally identifiable words and certain words that will take on almost a different meaning have dual meanings. And then there's something especially interesting, which is the Chengyu. And the Chengyu is a four-word idiom. It's a four-character idiom that makes up more of a meaning 
And it's similar to English idioms that there's normally a story associated with it. But then there's sometimes with these chungyus are maybe not so much of a story. So for example, one of my favorites, it comes in like your standard first level Chinese book, but it's a great one. And it's Busan Busu, which means sketchy. The literal translation is not three, not four. So it's sketchy. Busan Busu. So I think, I don't know, I just think that chungyus are very interesting and tells a lot about the culture itself, especially when their stories intertwined. So thinking about stereotypes that I perhaps had going to China or that uh, some Chinese citizens might have had about Americans, you know, I really think that I encountered those in the day-to-day life, just talking with people from the street almost. I had a really good relationship when I went abroad with the back alley dealers. And you, you say back alley and that Obviously, it makes you assume that it's some sort of sketchy dealing, but really all it was is that this called Lajijie, the trash street, which you walk down and there's just all sorts of street foods and it's all cheap. It's delicious. And a lot of times the vendors are very interesting people to talk to. So I had one guy in particular who, who made my xiaolongbao, which are like Chinese soup dumplings, delicious. And I would always talk with him and he was like, oh, you're is your you you American Jewish people are very smart. Like, all right, well, why, why are you saying why why are you saying the Jews are smart? Because <laughs> I mean, I'm Jewish too, and it's interesting. And there just seems to be this commonly held belief that the Jews are good at doing business. So he was, he thought that we should go into business together. You know, I talked with him at one point about investing in his company. Then I realized it probably wasn't the greatest idea to invest in the small shop of a university back alley businessman but very interesting a lot of people uh, approached me about going into business together even if the opportunity really was not that great it just seemed that there was quick money to be made and that's sort of a rising trend i feel in china is that a lot of citizens want that instant fame and instant success that a lot of other citizens have reached through gaiga kaifang the reform and opening up where western enterprises go in and it creates a lot of possibility for for China, but they're looking for the quick money deals, which are things such as bringing iPhones in. I know that you probably saw that there was that guy who got busted coming back from, was it Hong Kong or Macau? One of the two with like 96 iPhone 6s strapped to his chest going through airport security. And it's things like that where you can make a good amount of money, but your initial capital investment is pretty large. And then the risk of coming through and then losing all of that capital, which he did. So it, these quick money deals don't really pay out. Uh, as, as well as one would expect. Also, there's another stereotype that Americans are very concerned with terrorist activities, which is definitely valid. Americans as a whole are pretty scared of terrorists, as I think anybody is really. But at the same time, that really wasn't a huge concern for, for China. And then it happened when I was abroad, there was this like bombing that went on in Tiananmen Square. And I think it was by some Uyghur separatists, but also might have been what the media kind of played it up to be. There's been a lot of unrest between Uyghurs and the Han majority. I guess you'd say majority because they're not technically an ethnic minority in China. But there's this big conflict going on between them. And immediately when that happened, it was a terrorist activity. And that that's kind of when it first started to break into China of any sort of terrorist activity. It's interesting that there's this reflection of American fear of terrorism and how that translates over into China, in a sense, in that when it becomes something that's present on their home grounds, it becomes a new concern. But before, it wasn't a concern that it was terrorist activity. It was just more that somebody was, it was civil unrest. So Alex, I know you've been studying Chinese for about eight years. I'd like to just ask you if there were any doors that opened up to you that surprised you, shocked you 
just really took you by surprise or on the opposite side of that, any doors that closed on you. And perhaps branching from that question, are there any other languages you'd like to learn or any other skills or techniques or something that you'd like to learn to thereby open more doors for yourself? It's a very interesting question. Actually, um, I mentioned earlier the Chinese barbecue restaurant that I worked at the past summer. And funny enough, that was a door that just opened out of nowhere. I had just gotten back from abroad. I was using this Chinese messaging application called WeChat. And with WeChat, there's this feature that you can use, which you scan a QR code. And the QR code then allows you to follow either a company or follow somebody, and you can message with them too. So I was searching for jobs after leaving school last spring. I was having a hard time. Nothing really seemed to be working out. I got like one month into the, the break, and I just had this idea that maybe I should message this food truck that I scanned when I was in Boston for New Year's, which was a Chinese barbecue food truck. And they were the first to open up in Boston, really the first to open up in America that was selling skewers other than the food carts and flushing. But they're really the ones that have larger aspirations of, of branching out. And I had just seen this food truck on the street and I just messaged them. You know, I, I asked them if they wanted this American who can speak Chinese and English to help with marketing and any sorts of tasks that, that they need around the new restaurant that they had just opened up. And he, he messaged me back within 30, 45 minutes saying, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Come by our restaurant. And I was in New York and the restaurant was in Boston. So I got down there that weekend and just swung by. And he actually was very taken aback that I was a white guy walking in there. He, he thought I was Chinese at first. <laughs> but that was, that was definitely one of the oddest doors that opened up, along with the music production, I think, where I was just eating barbecue and I spoke with somebody who heard me beatboxing. And then we just started talking. And then she brought me onto her radio show with another friend of mine. And we, we rapped and beatboxed and had a lot of fun. It was, it, was, it was very, very interesting to have those opportunities open up. One question related to that then, I happen to know, as some of our listeners might also, that you gave a survey recently for a paper and a project that you're working on regarding, I believe it was Chinese restaurants in America. And I know that one of the questions, I believe, had been about authenticity of the experience. And I'm curious to know, at least from your perspective, to what degree Chinese restaurants may be because they obviously serve Chinese food, or at least certain versions of Chinese food, to what extent they have brought certain aspects of Chinese culture into the restaurants and obviously into American space. Personally, I would hope that it's very successfully so, but maybe you think that it's not enough or not quite representative of Chinese culture, and I'd be curious to hear. It's really hard to say. By and large, authenticity is valued lower by American consumers in terms of food authenticity and also atmospheric authenticity. And the problem is, is that Chinese food, or at least what we recognize as Chinese food in America, comes more from Canton, which is a southern region near Guangdong. The food comes from there because in the 1860s, when we were working on the railroads that go west, a lot of Chinese migrant workers came and they started to work and then decided to open up restaurants to, to feed everybody. And that's sort of how it broke out. And it really integrated itself into American food, American culture, just because it was something that's been around for nearly as long as, as America has been around to some degree. And it's it's been hard to break out of that sort of cultural identity that, that's been established. So I guess the, the short answer is that no, the Chinese restaurants are not authentic. There are certain things that make it come off as authentic, such as your traditional brush painting, the red lanterns that hang, 
the soft zither music that's playing. But by and large, that's not necessarily what you're going to see in a restaurant in China. You know, it's very hard to pinpoint what exactly to expect out of a restaurant in China and what the the Chinese aesthetic is. There are a lot of like hole in the wall type restaurants that you might find in large cities, but there are also gourmet Chinese restaurants which kind of take on more of a Western approach, but still have the the shared Chinese like lazy Susan approach where everybody's sharing the same dishes. So it's very, very fascinating. And I personally have a belief that your experiences in dealing with the cuisine shape how you perceive the culture, which then in my paper, at least how that shapes the consumer's expectations that come out of products manufactured in that country. So it's very interesting to look at the correlations between all these Well, then I guess, Alex, one of my final questions to you would be about recommendations, either of books that people could read maybe in English to perhaps learn more about Chinese culture. If people are visiting China, either places you would recommend, restaurants you would recommend, or dishes that you might recommend to sort of familiarize people and maybe point them in the direction of some of the experiences that you were lucky enough to have. I'd be curious to hear what things come to mind. I guess like number one is that you need to dare to dare. You have to dare to try new things, to try and experience new things. I mean, I'm not 100% fluent. I'm fluent, but I'm not 100% fluent because there's always new words to learn. There's always new words to learn in English too. So the only way that you're going to learn those is by talking with people and taking a stab at just communicating and trying to get your voice heard and have people correct you and take it with a grain of salt in terms of anything that they criticize you about. If there is any criticism, there shouldn't be. But if there is, take it with a grain of salt because you're still a student, you're learning. In terms of dishes, I would suggest, man, there are so many. It varies from region to region, especially too, just because there's different flavor palettes within each region. Some of my favorites though, probably Jiangbao Chiezi, Suan Lao Tudo Si, and then also you, I mean, you go to like some of the street, street side. Jiangbao Chiezi is like this like kind of sweet and sour eggplant. Suan Lao Tudo Si is sour and spicy, like potato shreds, so like, kind of like grated potato shred kind of like latkes before but it's a nice like oily and sour taste it's good i would also eat beijing kaoya when you have the chance which is you can find that in beijing very crispy skin take the skin it's three course three course meal the soup at the end skin to dip in it's delicious potato skin no no that this is the duck skin this is duck skin yeah sorry i don't know if i made that clear (laughs) also try a lot of the street food people tell you not to eat the street food because you're going to get sick well like so it happens you just have to suffer through it and if you aren't willing to dare to eat the street food then that's fine but i would very highly suggest eating the street food because that's that's almost the cultural bread and butter you know that's like what everybody will eat is something that comes off the street even you know so it's it's understanding the culture through cuisine and that will lead you to understanding a culture a lot better (laughs) Well, Alex, of course, we thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you, guys. And sharing some of this stuff with us. Of course, we would love this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. And Hector, if people do want to reach us, how would they go about doing it? Reach us on Facebook at Stride and Saunter. Email us at strideandsaunter at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Stride and Saunter. Or visit our website strideandsaunter.com. And of course, with this episode, I'm going to make sure to include some links, maybe to some of the cuisine and other things that Alex has mentioned, if anyone is willing or interested in doing further research. And of course, as always, we thank you for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Hector Morero. Have a conversation with a stranger today. And this is Alex Urist. Bye-bye.